Hello and welcome. This is the Apologia Center. It is 1.02 p.m. on the west coast of the United States. It is October the 13th. And I am very happy that we are back doing our live interviews with, uh, I would say, in-house guests. But technically, it's not in-house because we're doing it uh, via the Internet, which is uh, amazing. And glory to God that we have the ability to bring in guests, uh, to interact with us, answer our questions. Uh, and so... I will jump into that. Uh, the guest today is a good friend of mine, and uh, I'm going to read a little bio about him so you get to know about him, and then uh, and then we'll bring him on and, and let him teach us. So hopefully you're ready, you're strapped in, and uh, you are looking forward to this conversation. So keep your questions. We will have a Q&A time at the end, and uh, let me just read a little bit about him, Okay. So Dr. Jacob Daniel is a Christian apologist and a cultural analyst. He's a founder of Heritage Council. We'll talk about what that is and how he does that work. And uh, he's got a lot of degrees and way too many of them for me to, to list, list here. But I will just generally say that he received his pre-doctoral degrees in India. And then he did some advanced international development uh, at the University of Manchester in the U.K., and uh, also went to the University of Oxford to study theology. Eventually ended up in the United States and got his PhD in intercultural studies from Biola University. And he's, his specific interests are in preparing the hearts and minds of the believers to enforce a robust biblical framework in culture by addressing its various challenges through proper cultural exegesis. I like that. That whole sentence is amazing. Okay and strategic engagement. Jacob is married to Prita, and they live in Los Angeles. That's where they call home. So I want to welcome Jacob and, and thank him for agreeing to be here with us. Uh, we've done quite a bit of stuff together and some ministry uh, with one another. He was gracious enough to accompany us to Armenia in 2018, which is essentially where this whole Apologia Center ministry uh, and me moving to Armenia, it all started there. Jacob was a witness to that, and I hope and pray that we can end up in Armenia again together. Welcome, Jacob. So good to be here, brother. Yeah, I just was remembering our time together in Armenia and how this ministry came about. So let me just say this. Uh, congratulations, you know, just how God is using your ministry to bring the truth of the gospel and informing the culture in which we are living. So, yeah, praise God for what you're doing, brother. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And um, just to start off, would you say that some of us, at the very least, live in the intersection of many different cultures? Yeah. So, um, personally, I can speak for myself. I grew up in India. You know, even there, my parents come from the south of India, but I was born and ra raised up uh, up north. So I, I always kind of like, like was raised up in between two different cultures. And from there onwards, I mean, moving on to the, the Middle East for some time, then to the UK and then to America here. So this, this fact that uh, it's not just about someone who is actually living in that part of the world, kind of like lives in that kind of context. Here in the West as well, I, I think there has been uh, a lot of people moving in here and how that, where, where they come from kind of in, impacts the way people now live here as well and how it's impacting the western culture and i think that's what we want to be talking about today um for for our segment here so i'm really looking forward to that correct correct um so a couple of questions uh someone asked a question or put a comment here says would you say he has more degrees than a thermometer um <laughs> uh, no, no, uh, no. I, 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 I wish I could break that, uh, but I, I've not been able to yet. So, yeah. but but I'm grateful for all the degrees that I've had and the journey that I've taken uh, that God allowed in my life. Uh, that kind of helps me to actually look at culture from various different perspectives and make sense out of where we are and how we see our world today. Correct. So usually when I have guests on, uh, Jacob, I ask about some practical issues about how you survived your educational uh, kind of journey and people talk about you know marriage and being single and children and families and how to navigate all these things maybe there's a couple of things some nuggets of truth two or three you can give people who are maybe in the beginning stages 
of starting their educational journey or maybe they're thinking like man I want to go get a graduate degree, but I don't have the finances or I don't have the time or whatever, you know, I want to get a PhD, but all these things are kind of stopping me. What are some truths of life experience you can, you can give to our viewers? Um, I have always seen education as part of uh, my calling itself. And that, that has something that that's really helped me uh, to pursue that which looked like uh, beyond my capacity. So I always tell someone who is really interested in pursuing higher education, um, you have to make sure that you're really called to do that. I personally believe that higher education in itself is a calling that should be directed properly. It, and when you do that, what happens is that then finances doesn't become your priority. That's not the first thing you would look for. What you will look for is that whether you want to really apply for this program or not and pursue it. because. Um, you also know, Arthur, you've, you've done quite a few <laughs> advanced studies as well in theology and philosophy and all. Uh, and you would know education is not easy in terms of pursuing it and continuing it and sustaining through it and finishing it. And there are a lot of challenges that come about. What really helps is to know that what you're doing has a purpose. Mm. And the purpose is not just merely for the sake of uh, getting an employment or career but a greater purpose that God has through it. And when you know that, and in, in, in all this, I would say, uh, God's, God, God is the one who sustains, God is the one who provides. And that's been my story. I grew up in India, didn't have my own resources to basically you know, pursue all this education. I had to really trust the Lord, but I also had to take the first step, knowing that this is what God has called me to. And I applied in different places, got admissions, you know, and then waited on the Lord to provide. And he always came through for the purposes that he had through my education. So, so that's what I would say. If you're called to education, um, make sure that it is aligned with God's purposes for your life. And when that happens, wait on him, trust on him to provide for the resources that are necessary. Amen. Amen. It also helps being married to the right person. Absolutely. Oh, let me say that how much that helps. Yeah. Uh, and I was able to do all because of the support I had behind me. And uh, Preeta had been great in that Amen. regard. Amen. She's got some, uh, so she, she has just the supportive personality to her. That's, uh, you know, that's her gifting and the way God's created. And it's phenomenal. I mean, for me, I, I, I started my graduate uh, degrees for my, uh, for my master's and I was single and then graduated, uh, married with uh, a kid and another one on the way. And without my wife's support, encouragement, time she gave me alone to sit down and read and study it would have been impossible so yeah uh it's amazing okay so tell us about heritage council okay i want to give you some time to talk about your own ministry why what it is where it came from and kind of the direction you guys go into yeah as i mentioned i grew up in india i was exposed to uh different cultures growing up as well uh but then god had different plan in terms of exposing me to um larger uh, you know context in terms of uh, uh, cultures around the world so i started traveling um, at the age of 24 uh, i moved to the uh, united states of um, emirates united emirates actually and then from there to qatar uh, and then from there to the uk so it was when i was in the uk i was really um, exposed to the western world and the way things work out here in the west and it made me ask a lot of questions in terms of how, why things are the way they are here. And I could see a lot of contrast between the Eastern world and the Western world. Growing up as a Christian, uh, I knew Christianity had to inform not just our personal life, but also um, the context in which we live. Uh, and I could see that it really worked out really well in terms of how, how public behavior and actions were informed theologically in one sense, even though people may not claim to be Christians here in the West. Um, but at the same time, I could also see a lot of challenges, challenges being imposed on the Western context and the attack that's been coming uh, onto the Christian uh, framework itself. And we'll talk about that uh, in a while more. Um, that kind of like generated a kind of like interest in me to really uh, understand what has happened to the Christian world or Christian you know, presence here in the West, that it is being abandoned. And that generated uh, an interest in terms of missions, not just in the Eastern world, that, that's what we are used to, but missions to the West. And I responded to that, got really interested in theology and philosophy, went to Oxford, did some studies there. 
and God opened a, dear, a door for us to move here to America. And uh, when we were here, we were not sure whether we we're going to be here for a long time. Uh, we were planning on being here for two years and then leaving from here. But God had different plans and he opened doors for us to stay here and also uh, kind of like sharpen our vision even more. Uh, and to really engage with the culture here and to help people here understand, especially in the church, uh, for them to know uh, uh, what is it that they have inherited in terms of Christian heritage and why they shouldn't be taking it for granted. So I founded this ministry in 2019 I fin after I finished my PhD. I've been involved in global missions. I've been involved in missions here, but formally I started it in 2019. Um, and... Uh, been working on this vision to advance uh, the truth of Christian faith and promote its excellence in public life, mm -hmm. keeping a good balance. And I think Christians here need to understand what they have inherited is valuable and something that they really need to fight for. Okay, so and not just for their own sake, but also for the sake of missions around the world. Amen. Uh, so would it be safe to say that you're a missionary to the West from the East? I would say so, yeah. So for, the, for folks who are sitting there and saying, uh, uh, I, I got to go somewhere else and be a missionary there. Uh, well, Jacob's come here and is a missionary uh, in our midst. So, Jacob, the, the, as we were discussing and speaking about the subject here, you said that uh, we could speak about how is, is the West becoming more Hindu? That's very unique. And um, I suppose... Uh, it, it, it would make sense for you to give us maybe a brief understanding of what Hinduism is. And I know that's difficult to do that in a very brief kind of way. But um, let's talk about what it is. Um, and then we'll, we'll speak about kind of why we're even going in that direction. And then in what ways we're seeing it kind of peek its head and, uh, and move into the directions, whether it's in the church or just in cultural in general. Okay, so sure. what yeah. would you say maybe is the thing that kind of um, epitomizes Hinduism? Um, we can talk about a lot of things, but ultimately it's the way they understand the ultimate reality. It comes down to that. And it's not just Hinduism, even with other religions, uh, we can make such a claim. There, there's a clear distinction in terms of how we understand ultimate reality and how Hindus understand it. Uh, from a Hindu perspective, the ultimate reality is one. And uh, so the whole idea of oneism, as Peter Jones talks about it, uh, there is no dis uh, duality, there is no distinction between the creator and creation. So when the whole reality is one, uh, you in itself have the essence of that ultimate reality, then that's what you have to assume. So there are certain presuppositions with which Hinduism works. One of the major one is this, that the ultimate reality is one and you have the essence of that ultimate reality within you. It's possible that you might be ignorant of that. And to, be, uh, to really realize that you are part of that essence, you have to get enlightened. And there, there are different ways to do that. Uh, the way you do that within Hinduism is by looking within, not without. Uh, the meaning is not gonna come from outside. It's gonna come from within your own self. You have to uh, be your own standard to achieve that enlightenment, that knowledge of who you are within that ultimate reality. This is completely distinct from our biblical understanding of a clear distinction between the creator and the creation. Roman one, uh, Romans 1 is very clear about that. Um, and that distinction basically does this. Uh, it puts constraint on the creatures. When there is a creator uh, who is sovereign, who is a creator God, uh, he allows for certain constraints around its creature. And in so doing, it's not that he is somehow taking our, away our liberty. Uh, and this is what people here in the West needs to understand when we use the term liberty. Mm. It, is, it doesn't mean absolute freedom. It means that you basically enjoy freedom within the confines of certain constraints. And that is only possible if you have a clear distinction between the creator and the creature. And that's not available in Hinduism. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, recently, I did a video of, uh, about uh, Oprah Winfrey and, and these ideas of like Christ consciousness. Uh, it, it very much sounds like, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it is, that the influence is coming from that direction where like we have this inherent divinity within us, right? And, and it sounds good. I mean, who doesn't want to hear that, right? Like frankly speaking, who doesn't want to hear someone saying, hey, 
you you have the, the however they want to communicate it but they some people won't say you are god but they will say you have like the divine essence or a spark of the divine essence they use this kind of lingo um and is 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 that language infiltrating our culture let's just say the western culture because there is a vacuum that's been presented because the judeo-christian worldview has been pushed to the side um or are there other reasons for it so so what happened is basically uh if you look at the western world it is built on certain truth uh that is revealed truth they're not self-evident by reason alone so revelation had played a major role in terms of uh, creating the western civilization itself one of the basic truth on which the western world is built upon is the fact that we all are created equal and that is only possible from a biblical perspective uh, with the idea of being made in the image of god and this idea is not available in other worldviews so what's happening is that um, through enlightenment we abandoned uh, revelation completely and we took on reason as the only source of uh, truth and what happened was we enthroned rationality uh, to the place and replaced God with it. And in so doing, uh, in a postmodern world that we have come to, we have realized that rationality hasn't delivered what it promised. So we engage in that truth, in, in meaning making process in our postmodern world. We entered through the way of meaning making process and we ended up in truth making process that we engage in right now. So when we abandoned God completely, abandoned reason completely all we were left with was our own personal emotions and feelings and preferences and we ourselves became the arbiter of truth and we became the standard by which we would judge all other morals all other lives around us uh, so i think uh, that has been the trajectory so it's not merely the vacuum it's the abandonment of god first and then reason and then coming to a place of uh, basically enthroning our own self in place of God, in pursuit of becoming God ourselves. Hmm, interesting. Um, I think there's some conversation in the in the chat going on that this is the oldest uh, play uh, from the playbook. Yes. Uh, okay. So you shall become like God, and that's the very pursuit. So it, it, what's happening right now is that the devil is whispering the same idea in different ways. One of the ways he is doing is that uh, the whole idea, uh, one of the mantras of this framework or this ideology is this, uh, and I can mention a couple of more. One is that uh, you can be spiritual, but you don't have to be religious, mm. right? Uh, what is religion basically? Religion is spirituality with parameters. <laughs> I like right? that. That's what it is. Uh, so, and that's true with Chris Christian faith as well. So what happens is that when you have abandoned God and you have enthroned your own self, then you don't want any constraints on your own life. And guess what? Uh, with uh, uh, with our unregenerate people, when they take up this idea that there are no constraints, it becomes empowering. And guess what? Empowered people without constraint seek more power. Yeah, seems like and that's what they're seeing in our culture. So okay, so that leads me to um, kind of the what we see in India, because you spoke about equality being, equality, people being made in the image of God, being the standard for why there's equality, where we don't see that in India. Um, and yes. we, we see a caste system in the, I, I, India, and it seems to me that this is directly related to a religious, a worldview issue. Um, and has that become oppressive is my question. Now, the thing is that it's not the emphasis is not on equality, even though we all have the essence of God in us, hmm. this, this essence is manifested at different degrees. So that's what we need to understand. So with every being who is manifesting their essence of being divine are manifesting at different level. So one of the examples that Hindus would use is of Lotus. I don't know if you've seen a Lotus, you know, that's represented uh, they, they would, you would find idols of different god and goddesses. They're placed placed on a lotus. Mm. So the idea is that it's the idea of emanating. It's the idea of um, uh, perpetually opening up at different levels. So even though we may have essence of God in us, it comes in degrees. That's why a Hindu would not hesitate to bow before a cow 
and worship it, but not to the level of bowing and worshiping a rat or a, a, a tree or a rock, but everything has a different level of essence. And that happens even among individuals because individuals are, are made out of this ultimate reality, which has different sections. So upper caste Brahmins are made from head. Lower caste untouchables are made from feet, mm. right? Of this ultimate reality, because it has, and that's a contradiction in itself, that if ultimate reality is one, how can it have different parts that Hinduism functions within? And I would say when it works out exist existentially, it creates those division among people and that therefore you have caste system so this becomes you, very contradictory to the western mind because uh western europe and america as an extension of that um has this intrinsic kind of democratic idea that all men are created equal right and endowed by their creator like that yeah. it's just there we assume it we live by it but then these ideas kind of infiltrate into the Western mind, and it doesn't formulate itself, obviously, the way it is in the East. It doesn't formulate itself. It is in India. Uh, we don't yeah. really have a caste system in that sense, where it seems to me there's a, like a first world uh, version of it is, is the way I'm thinking, right? It's, hey, everyone, you're divine, you're amazing, you're great, look, look at all this stuff. But when you look at its roots, you're completely ignoring the fact that there are these untouchables. Yeah. I guess the so, question so, here would be, is that if we just take this on, this idea, even though it's going to start with its first world version of it, is it, whether we like it or not, going to end up creating some kind of a caste system here? Um, I would say so. And let me start by saying this. Uh, the founders of this nation said that, uh, th that, that, they called it self-evident, right? Mm -hmm. That we all hold, we hold this truth to be self-evident, that we all are created equal and uh, endowed with some inalienable rights. Now, who is it self-evident to? Is it self-evident to Hindus? I wouldn't say so. It, is it self-evident to Muslims uh, around the world? It's not. It's self-evident to those who had a biblical framework because the idea that you all are created equal only comes from there. So even when the founders were appealing to that idea, they were appealing it from a biblical framework, which is not available elsewhere. Now, with regards to the distinction among people, this is what I would say. Uh, so the way it works out is that you, you yourself become the standard. But what happens is that your personal identity that you are creating is not fulfilled unless it is affirmed by the other. And that's what we are seeing here in the West as well. So now if you talk to young people who are creating their own self-identities, the, the whole philosophy of self, mm -hmm. the whole idea of existentialism, the, the idea of I need to create my own self, while they are doing that, then it's not limited to creating your own self. It has to be realized and it gets realized when it is affirmed by the other within the society in which you live. So one of the examples I give is this, uh, that... I may create my own pronouns, but it has to be now affirmed by others. It must be affirmed by others. Mm. We used to earlier regulate what you cannot say, but now we regulate what you must say. Oh. So when that happens, what happens is that when uh, that uh, identity is not affirmed by the society, individuals tend to get into their identity groups where it actually gets affirmed. So now you have these small different identity groups that are created within which their identity is affirmed and then clashes happens between these identity groups. And that's what we are seeing in, in then the you see a Then you see a caste system. Then you see a caste system. And what happens is that uh, our listeners will have to understand the American idea until I would say like three decades ago was still working was the idea of melting pot. You would come from wherever you are coming from. You would just melt into this pot and become Americans. You had a common identity while you maintained your individual identity as well, wherever you came from. Now the idea is more like a salad bar. It's the idea of, and also the idea of Indian thali. If you go to an Indian restaurant, you get this big plate with different sections on it. Nothing mixes, but there is this one plate that you belong to. 
And that's what's happening here. The idea is basically that there is no nothing, there's no e pluribus unum. There's mm-hmm. nothing that unites us many, we who are many, right? Uh, so we remain fragmented in different sections and we function, we hope that we would function without any commonalities. And we are missing that common idea, the common foundation on which this nation was built, which Christianity provided. And it was founded on that basic idea that we all are created equal, not from different paths of God with different values and different uh, worth and dignity, uh, but with the same uh, image that God has put on us. That's Father. why, if you see, the caste system is coming here to the West. Yeah, it's, I would it's, say it is already here. It seems like it, doesn't it? It's I, already mean, uh, here. It, it, I, I was reminded of a, I guess, a quote I've been hearing quite a bit that this is the most divided America has been since the Civil War. Some people might even say since ever, this is the most mm. divided uh, it's, it's ever been. But one of the things that I'm realizing is it's very difficult now even to, to say I belong to this group uh, because the groups are becoming smaller and smaller that you, which you belong to because the disagreements are larger and larger. And you have to understand this. Yeah, uh, this is a Hindu idea as well. Uh, sorry for interjecting, no, but for it. uh, it's important for us to uh, realize the Hindu idea is not merely to, merely to lose your individualism. It's the idea of losing the individual itself. Right. Yeah. So what happens is that when this individual belongs to this identity group, then it's not the personal liberty of that individual that is kept as important. It is the group identity and what group stands for. Mm. So when that happens, individual is completely dissolved in one sense. You lose your individualism. At the same time, the individual itself is loose because the group identity and group vision in itself becomes a priority and, and it comes in clashes with each other. Now, guess what happens? And this is the symptom we are seeing here in the West as well. So when an individual goes against the group, for some reason, say, for example, you, you're you part of uh, this one community, if I'm part of an Indian community, uh, an Indian group, and that has certain values and certain ideas that they want to implement in the society and want to be accepted by others. And if in any sense, I step out of it and say that, no, we need to actually correct this. We need to actually do this instead. So they won't actually appeal to a standard by which they would judge my suggestion what they would do is they would cancel me excommunicate me Mm. and that's what we are seeing in our culture today with the whole cancel culture so if you belong in a group and you go against the group they would not appeal to a standard to judge your innocence or whether you are guilty what they would do is they would basically shame you by excommunicating you okay so so uh, american cancel culture is bringing back the worst kind of shame culture that's ever existed So we need to understand here in the West that one of the gifts of the Bible, and no one talks about it here, I don't know why, is the whole idea of innocence and guilt framework. Why? When you you have that framework, you have to then appeal to a certain law, certain standard by which you're pronouncing someone to be innocent and someone Mm -hmm. to be guilty. So now, because we have abandoned God and thereby his law completely, you have to replace now this framework with something new. And what we are doing is we are adopting the framework of honor and shame instead, yeah, which so is very much Eastern in its nature. Yeah, so it's, 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 we're not considering whether something is right and wrong. We're considering whether it is acceptable or unacceptable. Uh, because there's no objective un- truth right. by which we can pronounce anyone to be innocent or guilty. So earlier on, I guess this goes back to earlier on, you made a comment and we brushed over it. Maybe we need to qualify it a little more. You spoke about... Uh, meaning-making and truth-making. Um, can, can you elaborate on that? Because I think it is connected to what we just said. Yes. Uh, this, this kind of relativism of sorts that becomes, hey, we're going to come up with whatever this truth looks like or whatever, however we're going to make. So, so explain those two terms. You said meaning-making and truth-making. So we, we have to recognize that, that regardless of where we come from, we all engage in some sort of meaning-making process meaning about certain truth. So we maintain some sort of objectivity about truth itself, 
that there is truth that we can grasp through meaning-making process. We can engage in that process and we can all come to that truth that exists by itself. Whereas truth-making process is that, and it is, it is directed to the idea that truth is objectively standing on its own. Whereas with truth-making process, we are starting to look within our own selves based on our own preferences, based on our own emotions and feelings, we are pronouncing something to be true in itself. So we are engaging in that truth-making process. And that happens because of this shift that happens from outside to inward. Uh, in all this, this is the basic assumption. And this is why, as Christians, we should be very careful about this ideology. It completely throws away the idea of original sin. So what happens is that it assumes that individuals by birth are more like blank slate. And again, you will be familiar with this idea that individuals are born, you know, without sin, they get corrupted by the system, wow. by the society, right? So that's where our society has come to. We are assuming that individuals by themselves are innocent. They're born innocent. They're corrupted by the society. And it works out even through the idea of critical theory, critical race theory, and all. That's the assumption. So, that is so okay, yeah, let's move there because that's immediately where my mind went. Um, yeah. Is that whenever we whenever we speak about racial conflict and issues that are happening, you always get this uh, response by it's a systemic problem, whether it's not a systemic problem. Yeah. And it's like, but I'm not even a part of that. But if you fall into a certain category then whether you like it or not. So I'll just use myself as an example. Um, I don't know whether I would be qualified as a white male or something like that. I'm not very sure, but I'm definitely not Anglo-Saxon. I'm an immigrant. But you're to this truly country. Caucasian, though, because huh? you come yeah, from the Caucasus. Correct. Yeah, that's the, the, <laughs> <laughs> the proper mountains. But it's like, I'm an immigrant. Um, I haven't had the easiest of lives. But then people would be like, uh-huh, but you're a man. You're a, you're a heterosexual man. And so you've just yeah. given all these advantages or whatever like that, right? Um, and you just get thrown into these, uh, the, these things where they're saying the system has corrupted you. So the system of a heterosexual male has corrupted me, and then now what I need to do is unwind that, I guess, rewind that or erase that and replace it. Yeah, deconstruct and deconvert, yeah. So deconstruct so and deconvert from what? From being a guy, from being Armenian, from, be like from everything that is my identity? From being a yeah. Christian, I guess. So, uh, basically, this is what's happening. It's an attack on Christian anthropology. Uh, there is such a thing, right? Bible teaches us that we are created in the image of God. But it also teaches us that we are flawed. We are flawed because of uh, our sin, that we, we participate in a sin that is collective as well. Um, and we participate in the sin of Adam. Uh, now, that's a very theological way of putting it, uh, but there is an attempt, we need to realize, it's an attack on Christian anthropology in this manner, that they, there is an attempt to distance us from first Adam. And in so doing, automatically, then you don't need a savior in Jesus, who is a second Adam. Right? So within this idea, there is no one gospel that we can preach. There is no way we can say that Jesus is the only way and that he is, he is the ultimate sacrifice for all of humanity. Within this framework, Jesus has to die. I don't know how many billion people are there on this earth. He has to die every time for every individual, for every sin. So there is no one gospel. Or there is no one claim of Jesus that he is the way, the truth, and the life. There are many ways to God. There are many ways to salvation. And that's the kind of culture we have come to. This is why it is so important that it's an attack on the Christian framework itself. The West is becoming Eastern in this manner that the whole framework within which it was built is being abandoned completely. It's been canceled completely to move to this new paradigm, new framework, a new structure, which is very much Hindu. That's why I'm saying ideologically, the West has become Hindu. Okay, so... How do we properly respond to this as Christian evangelists, as Christians who are called by God to be his um, a nation of priests and to be his representatives? We want to do it in love. We want to do it uh, graciously and boldly and in truth. Um, how do we go about 
cultural change, but at the same time, not just a cultural change, because cultural change for the sake of cultural change, I don't know whether that's worth it, because the reason why we have the culture the way we have it is because individuals change, were changed spiritually. So I would say, maybe for our focus, what I'm realizing, at least in conservative circles, our focus is so much on changing the culture and not about changing the heart and the mind. Or, or maybe I'm wrong, right? I would say it's the other way around. So much of our evangelism has been focused on saving souls. Uh-huh. But, but we, we limit Jesus' authority to individual salvations. So some, one of my friends, uh, Vishal Mangalwadi, posted this recently. Um, and he's, he was, he's not against Billy Graham or anyone like that, but he, this is what he said. Billy Graham uh, evangelized and uh, you know, uh, saved souls. Whereas Hugh Efner discipled the nation. Huh, interesting. Think about that. Uh, and which is true, right? So what has happened is that we have focused so much on individual salvation, which is necessary and important. Gospel is for individuals and for their transformation. At the same time, gospel has a greater purpose as well. We need to recognize that when Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. So go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And that's what we need to ca- capture. Why? And missions is for this sake. What did Jesus inherit at resurrection? If you read Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm, it's, it talks about it very clearly. It says that, ask of me and I'll give you nations as your inheritance and the ends of earth your possession. That is what Jesus inherited. Now, what we've done is actually we have interpreted this nation to be just individuals and that Christ only holds authority over individuals, not on nations, not on the politics, not on the way culture is created. And we completely abandon that. And that is what needs to be recaptured again, that God is interested in all. Christ is Christ over all. He's king over all. He's king of kings. And yeah. Go ahead. Uh, um, I was going to say, it's interesting that when you look at sermons on any given Sunday, you, get, you look at sermons in churches, um, say the first 150 years of American history, you would have seen a good amount of serv- uh, sermons be about the Bible and its influence on politics and what's going on in the nation as opposed to how Christians should react to that. There's quite a bit of political talk from the pulpit where it's almost non-existent now. Um, where people are even afraid to speak from the pulpit about politics. What you're saying is we need to re-engage this idea. What I'm saying is that we need to really understand how do we define politics. If we define it correctly, we would understand what the Christian role is in politics. Um, the way I define, or the way politics must be defined okay. is, it's basically applied ethics. Uh-huh. That's what politics is, Right. The role of politicians is to apply a certain ethics. Now, the question is, whose ethics would you like to be applied? So there's no neutral ground here. There is absolutely no neutral ground. We have to abandon and shun this deception of neutrality. So if I'm called to apply biblical ethics in my personal life, in the life of my family, in the life of my church, what justifies the fact that it doesn't go beyond that and must be applied at at civil government level as well. Yeah. Would this not be, be maybe, Would this maybe not be a negative um, application of Western individualism, where it's it, it becomes so much about the person, where our relationship with God just becomes so individualistic, and and maybe a little bit beyond that to your family and stuff, but not really. You don't get involved in the lives even of your church people, and especially the God, like on a wider scale in government. Uh, yeah, I, I believe there is truth in that. And this is why it is so important that we need to be, uh, and culturally, if we see the very first point of attack, this, this is the reason why it's the household, right? Mm. Because household is where, you know, the government kind of like, uh, the, the, the family government works out. You, that's where it's, individuals can be individuals, right? And they can apply, scripture individually on their life. But when it comes to family as a unit, they have to now see how this works out 
between us, between individuals, right? That's why the only antidote I think in our culture today that I see would work is stronger families, mm. stronger household, parents, fathers who would understand their roles, mothers who would understand their roles, and children who would understand what it means, means to submit to each other, right? Submit to their parents. Uh, and it, that's where you have to abandon in one sense this idea of my fate is just for myself uh -huh. and has to somehow work for me. And even with regards to mission, this is where I was coming to when we were talking about the nation, the whole idea of nation, why it is a Christian idea and why it is important for us to preserve it through good kind of politics and through good kind of governance is because uh, the very idea of nation kind of points to the idea of sovereignty as well. The idea of uh, rule, the idea of boundary, the idea of constraint that is necessary in order to function as a unit. And if we are going to attack that, if we're going to attack that at family level as well, what happens is then, then we have to abandon all kinds of boundaries. And that's what we are seeing at national level as well, that there's an attack at national boundaries, trying to remove it so that we can become more globalist in our attitude. And for that to happen, you have to then remove all constraints and boundaries in yeah, one I'm, sense. I'm reminded of a Chesterton quote uh, where uh, he said, when you come to a fence, be careful before you take the fence down because it might not be to keep you in, but to keep the outside threat from coming yes. in. So it's for your own protection. We need to be asking why it was put up in the first place. Yeah. Correct. Wow. Um, so we have to engage in politics. We got to engage. I, I, most likely what you're saying is engage at least in the local level uh, because that's where, you, you know, we probably have the most influence anyways, instead of sitting there and thinking kind of what's going on nationally and then bring about a change like that. So active Christianity is what, what you're saying is extremely needed. Uh, there is no other Christianity. Yeah, I, I like that, right? Like, yeah, right? it doesn't exist. You know, I, bought, like, I, I, remember, I remember going up and then uh, because of my culture, um, the, like we talk about the most important stuff in conversations over dinner, over family gatherings. We're, we're talking about politics and this, you know, it, it gets intense and it's beautiful. And uh, I remember uh, as a teenager kind of bringing these subjects up and then I would have people who were not Armenians, uh, predominantly Anglo-Saxons would tell me, Arthur, there's three things you don't talk about, sports, politics, and religion. And, uh, and then I would kind of respond by saying, that seems like a very boring life, by the way. <laughs> like th those are the most exciting things to talk about. Those are the things I talk about with, uh, with my friends and my family. But the church has really bought into that, is what you're saying. So uh, this is where we need to be careful. Uh, what we are not saying is that we will be redeemed by politics. Okay. That's not what we are saying. What we are saying is that our politics needs redeeming. There's a huge difference there, right? Correct. Uh, what we need to be doing is that we need to be asking, are we doing what John the Baptist did? And what did John the Baptist did? He brought biblical ethics to a pagan king and got beheaded for that. Mm. Think about that, right? That's what the early church did when they proclaimed that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Why? Because they understood the role of church. And as Christians, we, need, we must understand that all these four government that God has established, self-government, family government, uh, civil government, church government, they stand on their own. They have their sphere sovereignty, as Kuiper would put it, right? And they should function in that regard. At the same time, the role that church has is one of special role. And why do I say so? The church has been given the sword of word. And the civil government has been given uh, the sword of justice. Now, the church deals with sin and the civil government deals with crime. That's their jurisdiction. But remember this. Every sin is not a crime, but every crime is a sin. Therefore, the church has a responsibility to inform the civil government as well what justice must look like. And how do we know that? It's only when we look to the scripture and find out what true justice is. And right? yeah, I guess this takes us back to that conversation that there is no neutral ground here. Because if politics is ethics applied or applied ethics, then... Uh, if, if we say, hey, we're not going to enforce our Christian biblical 
um, view of things, the question becomes, well, then whose view are we going to be enforcing? And now what's happening is that the, the topic that we have today is one of that, how West is becoming Hindu. I believe we are applying Hindu idea of what law is. Because, because ultimate reality is one, then it comes to personal, personal preferences and leaning and lying as to what is right and what is wrong. There is no one standard that everyone would appeal to. And eventually, we'll end up in a society like that. And if you look at the uh, rest of the world, uh, you would find that, especially the Eastern world, uh, in the context of India, for example, there are god and goddesses assigned on both sides of good and evil. There are god and goddesses on the good side and on, on the evil side. You and you have to balance that somehow. That's the whole idea of our existence. You have to balance good and evil. And how do you do that? You do that with sacrifices. So in the Western world as well, that's how we are going to approach justice if we let this ideology to go into our judicial system as well. You will be balancing on the basis of certain sacrifices. It's not that you can actually pronounce something to be good all because it is good by certain standard. It's all because of the preferences of who says it's good and who, who says it's not. Yeah, I suppose, uh, and, and when you say sacrifices, uh, you're, you're not necessarily saying, well, in the East, you're gonna get that in the very physical sense. No, I'm not uh, saying in physical sense, yeah, but in, in the uh, West, it's a non-physical sense. And the thing yeah. that came to me is the amount of people that have come out and apologized and recanted statements they've made um, yes. uh, on Twitter and just Facebook posts and stuff like that. And uh, and genuinely, it's very and obvious, this is I think. Judge, generally, yeah. Yeah, generally this it's is obvious they're not the sincere. Church. Yeah. And, and so the, the thing is that a lot of church leaders are even capitulating to this pressure. They would say one thing because they understand this is right. But when the pressure comes, they sacrifice themselves on, on the altar and they, they apologize and they say that, oh, I didn't mean that. Yeah, I've been or I'm, I apologize for saying that, whereas they would know that this is the right thing and the true thing based on the standard that they believe in, which is the scripture, if I may. Say. Yeah, I suppose like it's not even them sacrificing themselves at the altar. They're actually sacrificing the word of God at the altar if they, what yeah. they're saying is a proper biblical uh, understanding of things. Yeah. And that becomes highly problematic. I mean, look, if you... We're all going to say wrong stuff. We're all going to say kind of silly stuff. I think um, it's reasonable if someone brings that to your attention and you go, well, you know what? Yeah, I could have communicated that better. I could have said that better. Or I was trying to say something else and it came out uh, incorrectly. Yeah. It's kind of a rash joke or something like that. But to come out and say, well, I said marriage is only between a man and a woman because it's instituted by God and a true family is one with a father and a mother and children. Um, or at the very least, a husband and a wife, uh, and then going back and saying, no, I really didn't mean that. I, I think it could be beyond that because then it's not your opinion only. That's yeah. what God has to say. And I think it was uh, Kathy uh, Cook who said, um, God is not going, going to rewrite the Bible for our generation, right? Let's hope uh, not. Truth, <laughs> truth is, uh, uh, and what, what is right is based on the character of God, which remains the same through all generation. And if we're going to abandon that, all we have to then do is give into the pressures of moral evolution. Mm. And now, now the thing is that the sad part is that people here in the West needs to understand that this ideology is finding its ally in technology. Technology yeah. is adopting this very idea of innovation through disruption. And it works in technology, right? They disrupt things to innovate things. Uh, but we are applying that to our morals as well. We're disrupting the standard that's been there the system that's been there, disrupting and deconstructing it so that on the hope that we can create something better. Yeah, and but I suppose it's much easier to even cancel people through that. Yeah. Because a good and, amount and of technology is coming more. around with the promise that we can achieve some kind of progress in our morals uh, through augmentation, hmm. through combining our consciousness together or arriving at a singularity in some sense uh, to a place where we can somehow shun what we call to be evil and bad uh, and evolve in our morality. Yeah, go beyond that. Okay, so here's, here's a question uh, for you, Jacob. We're gonna jump into some questions. So if the viewers have any questions for Jacob, uh, please go ahead and write that. This is for Dr. Daniels. Over the next five years, do you see cancel culture becoming a worse problem in the West? Uh, it is a worse problem even now. 
I mean, it's a reflection of where we have shifted and how much we have shifted. Um, if cancel, if we are people, if, if we are canceling people even now and not ideas on the basis of what they are, uh, it reflects that we've already shifted. So I think it is going to continue this way. Uh, if we're going to continue allowing for this ideology uh, uh, to permeate, uh, it has already permeated academia. Culturally, it has permeated uh, a lot of spheres, a lot of media. It's, it's happened already. At the same time, what I'm seeing is that there's a glimmer of hope, even within the church. Not everything is bad. Not everything is so negative. You know, we might be on the edge of the cliff, but there is still a hope for us to reclaim our prophetic voice in culture. There are a lot of people that I'm talking to. There is a lot of conversion happening mm. where people have had rushed into adopting these ideas and they've been canceling their friends. They've been canceling their people. But I do see uh, some kind of guilt by which they are reconsidering their position and moving to the side, uh, the, to the right side. And, you know, so that's happening as well. So in five years, I think at the pace in which we are going, still there will be a kind of cancel culture that, that's going to work out. But at the same time, we're going to see a movement towards uh, righteous affirmations. Interesting. Not unrighteous affirmations. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to me that uh, if you if you cancel everybody around you that disagrees with you, you're going to be living in a very lonely space. Uh, so, so exactly and what we so this is what where the shift is happening also within the media you would see a lot of people like two years ago they've been canceling a lot of people on various issues now they are being canceled now right we are seeing that in media uh, people uh, a lot of celebrities who who were canceling others when their past was exposed by people now and now they are being canceled yeah. and that's what happens this is an ideology where you have to constantly keep on sacrificing the individual because there's no one savior. There's no one Jesus you can trust. There has to be many Jesuses. There has to be many sacrifices for atonement if there is one. Yeah, it's like the dragon is eating itself from, from its tail. You know, its tail is in the mouth and it's just uh, gnawing away. Um, yeah. uh, that's, it's just phenomenal to me. So let's talk about tolerance a little bit here because we, I think we, look, uh, we live in a society that is very confused about tolerance, right? So I'll get usually uh, in the comment section or something like that, or people just asking me, well, do you hate um, uh, certain groups of people? Uh, usually it'll be like uh, LGBTQ or something like that. And I'm like, well, no, I, I don't hate anyone. Well, I try to the best of my abilities because Jesus very clearly speaks about this. I try very, very hard not to hate anyone. But for some reason, my disagreement is interpreted by them as hate. And I think this is related to tolerance. So it kind of explain to us the different kind of methods and ways tolerance uh, ought to be understood and maybe the incorrect way it's understood. Uh, one way to understand that would be uh, what direction are you taking? Are you taking a direction of uh, revolution or reformation? What do I mean by that? If you see God works through human history through a process. Uh, man is not perfect, but God has called us to be perfect as he is. What does that mean? We have to really engage with the process. And in so doing, we have to allow for that process to work out. Right. Um, uh, so we have to uh, make sure that in so doing, we are working with individuals who are working with ideas. We're called to be and I believe every individual is, in, individual is intolerant or must be intolerant to certain ideas and also to certain actions. For example, how about if there is a group of pedophiles, would you be hating them or not? Hmm. Or should you maintain a kind of tolerance towards them? Neutral stance. Right? Neutral stance towards them. So, so it comes down to what kind of approach do you want to take? If it is an approach of revolution, what happens is that you you take an immanentist approach where everything has to come down now. The st statues has to be brought down now. You have to change the whole system now. It doesn't go through a process whereby you actually bring about reformation. And that has to happen. And reformation happens through the way of virtuous people. Virtuous people who are founded on the foundation of truth. Whereas revolution happens through activism. 
That's why in, in our culture, even our educational system is taking that position of creating activists who need to identify or, or create their own identities and work with it. Mm. And it's, it's a bit complex there. And that's where we are heading. We're seeing how society is turning more towards revolution than reformation. And reformation would allow for tolerance to happen and intolerance to happen against ideas. Now, this is something we need to understand. Nations around the world where certain, certain ideas were reformed, they were reformed because they were reformers who were against and intolerant about certain ideas. If you are not intolerant about certain ideas, there cannot be reformers. You'd have reformers dilemma, right? We have to then put every, like we had to put Gandhi or um, Martin Luther King or whoever those reformers are. Um, we need to question them because they've been intolerant to certain ideas, right? So that's what we are talking about. So we're talking about intolerance towards ideas, maybe not individuals per se, because of the hope that they would reform, they would get back to that which is right. Okay, well, that, that assumes a number of things, like uh, the idea that there's, there are such things that are right. Exactly. And if you don't have that, then all that you're left with is, is constant re revolution, constant bringing down of individuals, cancelling individuals, uh, uh, removing their titles, removing the plaques, removing uh, the statues, removing words written in you know documents yeah. and things. So you have we, to if we don't stop ourselves to everyone's gonna be cancelled sorry so if we don't stop ourselves everyone's gonna be cancelled yes exactly <laughs> that's uh, and the previous question right if if we're gonna continue in this manner that's where exactly we're gonna end up <laughs> that's gonna be uh, very interesting a whole society of cancel people nobody can talk um well um do you do you see the future being uh, more or less uh, hopeful? You said there's hope, but I want you to elaborate on this. Uh, I might be uh, the only optimistic person you would find, <laughs> or at least at this level. I'm very optimistic for this reason that I trust the words of Jesus. Mm. He said uh, that he is the one building the church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is the posture we need. I always ask this question, when was the last time you heard someone being attacked by a gate? That's how the church is reacting, that the world is attacking us, right? But scripture says, gates of hell shall not prevail against you. So you have to have an offensive posture to the world as well, while you are also defending your the truth, right? You need to be attacking the gates and the gates shall not prevail. That's the promise given to us. and. This is, not an, this is not my example, I heard it somewhere. Um, we have to see human trajectory uh, more like uh, going on a hike. You have uh, a destination in mind, somewhere up on the peak, right? But there are moments when you are going towards that peak, there, there, there are moments when you're going down, you're going up, you're going down, going up. But if you're gonna only look at the moment when we are going down, we might get disappointed. So what you should be doing is taking a step back and looking at the whole horizon and knowing that God has ordained those moments of going down and going up, but ultimately God has a destination for us that he has promised and he is taking us there. So we have to step back and look at what Christian faith has done for civilizations around the world, for nations around the world and the good that he has provided. And we have to have that confidence. So going forward i be, i want to believe in the word of jesus i want to believe that when it says of the increase of his government there shall be no end mm -hmm. i want to believe that all authority in heaven and on earth is given to him i want to believe that the last enemy is death so when i'm going to do that there's no option for a christian but to be hopeful because our mm -hmm. hope is not in our in politics our hope is not on uh, our our church leaders, our hope is not on our, you know, teachers and leaders. Our hope is on Christ, who's already declared victory, and we carry his banner. Amen to that. So, uh, finally, uh, there's a number of individuals in our society. Uh, one, I'm very sure you've heard of. The other one, you might not have, uh, but I, I'd be surprised if you haven't. Uh, but uh, who aren't, who are getting a reaction from people, let me put it that way. So, Jordan Peterson is one of them. 
Um, and I would actually say with a younger generation, maybe those like around uh, 17, 16, 17, 18 years old, would be a gentleman named Andrew Tate. Um, and they're getting a reaction from people, and partly because I think people are realizing how tired they are of being told that just being themselves, especially men, uh, being themselves is somehow inherently sinful they're because they're a part of this gigantic cast of maleness or something like that. Um, it, it, does that give you hope in the sense that we are seeing a reaction, what we need to do is approach it as Christians and speak truth in those situations because ni- neither of these individuals, neither of these gentlemen are, uh, are Bible believing believers, uh, in, in the way you and I understand it. Um, I don't know if we should see it hopeful, uh, maybe we can, uh, but we need to understand that they, what, what they're doing is basically in one regard, what the scripture says, if you want worship, the, the rocks will cry out. The rocks are crying out, mm. right? Wow. So it, 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 it's a, it's, we should be asking, oh, are we not doing our job that the rocks have to cry out? Uh, so, so we need to be reflecting on our own self, our own posture as to what is it that we are doing for the sake of the kingdom? How, what is it that Christ would demand of us? And you talked about the whole idea of uh, how they are capturing that place of vacuum where, you know, just um, the society is questioning and basically showing men as fools. Mm-hmm. You know, our advertisements are depicting us that way. Our, um, uh, much of the media depicts fathers as being, you know, uh, manipulative in one sense. The, the, the only issue I would have is from their perspective is that because they don't have a biblical framework, I'm not speaking Jordan Peterson per, particularly, but, or, or Andrew Tate in person, but um, there are many other people who are capturing that place, is that the biblical understanding of manhood would be one of uh, assuming sacrificial responsibility, right? That would be an understanding of manhood which I'm not seeing from their perspective. For So from their perspective, though they are trying to empower men again and help them to understand the role of men in the family, in the society, and what they have contributed, that idea of sacrificial responsibility, assuming sacrificial responsibility, is not being discussed. And that is key. And that is only possible if you have a Christian framework. Because we look at Christ, who sacrifices everything for his bride. Right. And Jordan Peterson doesn't have that yet. Andrew Tate doesn't have that yet. Or Joe Rogan doesn't have that yet. You know, they don't have Jesus who shows us that aspect of sacrificial responsibility that's been taken up. Uh, So there is a deficiency there. But can we capture the longing that is there among young people to really uh, recapture uh, what their being as they are created to be? Yes, we can. So in that regard, we can be positive in one sense that we or can be hopeful in one sense that uh, these young people who are trying to find some meaning in their life would be directed then to Christ who truly is the man that we should look up to amen I mean I think that's a good note to end it with because it's solid uh, that Jesus is the man that we are looking at, uh, looking up to he's the ultimate man He's yes. uh, maybe if uh, some folks who are watching who would prefer language like he's the alpha, uh, he's the ultimate alpha man. Um, there is no and one the omega as well. Yeah, hey, man. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's no one who has lived a, hu- a more perfect human life yeah. uh, than Jesus, and uh, that is amazing. Uh, Jacob, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to to bless us like this and to engage in this conversation. Where could people kind of find your work, stuff you're working on, support your uh, your ministry? Just let us know. We'll put that in the description box, but let us know some of that stuff. Yeah, I'm very active on social media, so you would find a lot of uh, things that I do, you know, posted there. Um, so you can reach out to me on Facebook. You can add me. Um, I receive, you know, uh, friend requests very generously, so <laughs> not an issue there. But if you are really interested in our ministry, there are two ways to... Uh, look look up, look it up one is you can visit our website heritagecouncil.org council as in counseling 
heritagecouncil.org or you can go to our missions organization which is missionary gospel fellowship um, uh, look it up online and you can go to their website and learn more about our ministry amen well thank you thank you guys for joining us it's been a pleasure and uh, next week we have uh, another guest coming in and uh, the announcements uh, up there already in the community page you can check that out uh, every Thursday 1 p.m. we will have a guest uh, and we'll be talking about various subjects so Thank you, guys. God bless you. I will see you again tomorrow for our live Q&A sessions. And usually those are going for about two hours now. So that's uh, really encouraging. I want to thank you, guys. God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe, like, share this out. And we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.